Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your host is Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor and founder of the Chalcedon Teacher Training Institute. In the many mentoring situations I am in, I often hear from women, there are just no good men around. How can a Christian woman find a husband? And they'd be surprised to find out that men oftentimes say the same thing. And I've always responded by, be the kind of woman that a man would want to have help him with his calling. And to men, be the kind of man that a woman would want to join up with and help in furthering the kingdom of God. And I would say that I've had some modicum of success in communicating this. Well, one day I was taking a walk with a young woman from my church, and I was explaining to her this philosophy, and she said, oh, that sounds like Pastor Ken Graves's book. And I went, oh, well, what's the name of his book? And she said, I don't remember, but it's you can find it. And so I did, and I found out that the name of the book was Master, Mission, and Mate, with a subtitle, A Guide for Christian Singles. And I have the opportunity with us today to have Ken Graves come and discuss his book. Ken is a pastor, and I've heard him preach a number of times and watched a number of his videos. And uh, he has been described by one person with a voice from the wilderness. And as soon as you hear him, you will realize what I'm talking about. So, Ken, thanks for joining me today. Oh, Grateful for the opportunity, Andrea. Okay. So one of the things that you, um, I think are known for is unashamedly holding to the truths that God created human beings, male and female. And those are the two choices. And you also understand that the world has a lot to say in terms of who people are and how they should find the person of their dreams. So. Yeah. I'm assuming that because you dedicated this book to your children, it had something to do with being a father as you decided to maneuver this journey. It, it certainly did. That was actually you know, 20 years ago when, when my daughter was in her mid-teens. I was trying to guide her and her peers, her friends, I'm in the role of pastor. And it, I, I do believe that the scripture really does make abundantly clear that the distinctions of male and female, the distinctions of masculine and feminine are the, they're the highest and like final act of creation. As we study creation in the first, you know, chapters of Genesis, to me, it's all moving in one direction. There's a progression and it goes from good to very good. And this whole progression, I, I mean, God separating uh, light from darkness, uh, Land from water, um, waters from beneath, from waters above, and and ultimately the final act of separation is when he takes that one man that was created in his image and separates him, tears him in two into two very different people and different people with very different needs. I think the depth of those differences are, are the thing that our culture, which is in rebellion against God, is ignoring. And... Um, the depth of what a woman is is not something that you know man can just do with cosmetics. 
or what a man is, not something that a woman could achieve with a haircut, <clears throat> with a you know thicker watch band. It is is way deeper. The wiring of God. It's we as two genders represent. I think two sides, two halves of the very image of God that the original of us did bear. And and that factors into life. It factors into how we choose and what we're looking for and what it is that we need and what it is that they that we're looking for needs. Yes. The very first chapter of your book points out that marriage was not man's idea. Man, man didn't have a clue that, I mean, he knew he had a need. And as I've heard yeah. you say there was no one to share that sunset with. Right. But he didn't know how to bring it about. He wasn't going to be able to do it. So talk a little bit about how marriage is God's idea. Well, certainly even before Adam was aware of his need, God had already declared it. When God said it is not good to master be alone, I'll make him a helper, you know, comparable to him. And then God engaged him in a project that has him uh, recognizing the distinctions of all of the different kinds of animals. And within the, you know, animal creation, there was the concept of family. I believe God was heightening Adam's anticipation and at the same time causing him to wonder who was there for him? Who did God have in mind? And I, I, I believe it was God who, you know, we have the narrative in Genesis chapter two, where God said, it is not good that man should be alone. We'll make him a helper. And it was not Adam saying, it's not good that I should be alone. He had no reference point. I don't think that he was even aware that he was alone so much in that his relationship with God, his creator, was more than enough. You know, and, and, and uh, it was God who started to make him aware. And I believe God was the one who made him begin to dream. And I, I believe God is in all our dreams. Every one of us as young men and young women, we dream. And I think the Lord made us that way. Yes. One of the things you pointed out is that God could have gone back and done woman the way he created man. But you point out that he didn't do that. He did something different, something very discontinuous. Thank you, Andrea, for, for actually for noting that and, and relating it um, as well as you just did. I, I think it's, it's, it, it's, um, I preach much about what God did not do because it really stands out that he didn't create Eve separate from Adam. And it, there's a very real sense in which she was already there. She was present. She was extracted from man. God put that man into a deep sleep and took from him everything that was her. And Adam knows this. His mind is blown by it when he declares, this is now uh, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. She was taken out of man. And he wasn't, I don't think, so much tuned into that he just lost some matter. I believe that Adam, awaking from that sleep, was conscious that he was missing a lot. And, and, and there, there was a depth of emotion, a, a depth of, of feeling that was no longer part of him. I think that he had that opportunity to exist alone, but a more complete reflection of the image of God that, you know, the, the God who created him. Coming out of that deep sleep, he was altered and everything that he is not, she is. 
And it was a perfect match. It was God's doing. And obviously, Adam likes it because he's not, oh, gee, what happened to me? Uh, I'm not happy about this. In your book, you say, when we have a desire for romance and attraction, that's also God's idea. Absolutely. Even that and and sexual desire itself is God's idea. But the problem with modern humanity is that our fallen state on the side of Genesis chapter 3, people go about just obeying those instincts, just obeying those urges and appetites, and that is a recipe for misery. To, to, to live as an animal, an intelligent animal, and to just obey, um, you know, feelings is a recipe for misery. And that's why the world around us is so miserable. And they are even all the time declaring that they're, uh, that they're free, declaring that they're going to be true to themselves. They are living in denial, a denial of just how unfulfilled, how miserable they really are. Because we live just in obedience to what we want, we become a slave to our want. And so putting that desire together, recognizing that God gave us these desires, but then putting that together with the, you know, the, the principles of his word, the wisdom of restraint and the wisdom of entering covenants, the, the wisdom of coming into a, a relationship. And covenant is something I don't think Andrea, the modern world does not know about covenant. I would understand that that God is expecting a covenant is binding as long as the two parties both live. And and, and if people say the words, they'll go through the, you know, the whole marriage ceremony and and say things like till nothing but death shall part us, but they don't mean it. They mean till nothing but the death of my feelings shall part us. Yes. And that happens, um, unfortunately, in Christian families as well. Um, I know a lot of my contemporaries, once their children were grown and gone, suddenly yeah. there was no marriage anymore. Yeah, there was no, the, the, they discovered the glue that was keeping them together was a sense of duty to the children, but they don't have that same sense of duty to one another. And, and I think duty to the children was, was great and, and truly commendable. And that is what the scripture addresses more than our feelings and more than our state of emotion. The sad reality is that the scripture addresses our duty within the romantic relationship, but all culture can think about is our feeling. And, and uh, the, well, the word of God calls his people to live by faith. The just shall live by faith and faith is not the same as living by what we feel or what we want. And um, I believe that bringing our want, recognizing our want, but allowing it to be restricted by the wisdom of God and his laws and commands, it's in that context that we can actually find real fulfillment. Without without that, we're miserable. We're slaves to, you know, I, I felt this way about this person, but that got old, and now... I feel the same way about another person. So people just bail on their obligation and they rip themselves off. Right. And it's an interesting phenomenon since this union of man and woman that the two become one flesh. Now you're like becoming one flesh of a lot of different people. And I once Mm -hmm. heard it described that you put masking tape on something. The first time you pull it off, let's say you put it on your arm. It's like, ow. But then after a while, it doesn't stick very well. And it doesn't stick at all eventually. 
it's true. We really rip ourselves off. We we commit sins against ourselves. In fact, New Testament teaching, the Apostle Paul says, anybody who sins sexually sins against his own body. So it's we, we rip ourselves off in worse ways than we could ever imagine. So it's not surprising you have... Uh preponderance of people raised in state schools learning evolution that were just advanced animals mm-hmm. and when they come to faith they really do want something different but i think your book after identifying the wrong way to go out looking for mr right or mrs right and thinking that's the way you should do it you present what you call the right way in the right sequence talk a little bit about that well, I think the most important distinction between what I believe is the will of God and what is common practice, even within Christianity, is um, there's no there's no test driving a human heart. There's no uh, sort of trial, uh, you know, with, that involves test driving another person's lips or any other part of their body. I think that what modern Christianity needs to recognize, I think the whole world ought to recognize, is there's only two kinds of people addressed by Scripture, and that is single people and married people. There aren't any in-betweens, but culture has uh, created these sort of in-between states where you're not really married, but you claim some of the benefits of, of, of a covenant. I think that rip-off right there is what has to really got to be avoided, that the Christian who wants to truly know God's best needs to recognize that right now I'm single and I wish to be married. And in between, there isn't any relationship in between single and married that, that has any of the benefits or single, the uh, physical benefits or any of the deep emotional benefits of a covenant relationship. So if one can go about just honestly fellowshipping and i really believe in fellowship i really believe in just communication and and fellowship spending time together especially spending time serving the lord together or growing in our knowledge of god together that we spend time with people in prayer and fellowship in groups and the mistake that the uh, modern church folk make is they're following the the world's example you know by the way andrea there was a um there was uh, one particular book written by an educator it was called uh, uh, The Vanishing Word by an author, uh, Arthur W. Hunt III. And in one of his chapters, and the book is really about other things, but in one of his chapters, he talks about technology. And we're so excited about what technology is going to do for us that we never stop to think about what it's going to do to us. Mm-hmm. And he gives a valuable history lesson about how romance changed with the industrial age, and even just the invention of the automobile. Prior to the industrial age, people did not, single people did not pair up and go off alone. But rather, if you had any kind of interest in a young woman, you spent time with her family in a big parlor, on a porch, or somewhere around a big table. Nobody pulled up with a wagon and honked a horn, and uh, and a, and a girl just got in the wagon. That That was unheard of. The invention of the automobile put a little house on wheels, with um, heat, lights, and music, and everything changed. And uh, I, I think that there's far too much of that sort of pairing off people going and getting alone and, and doing what the world does, what the world calls dating. I believe that the believer 
ought to be engaged in fellowship and service. You know, the process of fellowshipping and just serving the Lord, you know, they become aware of somebody else, that God awakens them like he woke Adam out of his deep sleep. Mm -hmm. He awakens them to the qualities of this person, and they spend time in fellowship. And in the course of spending time in fellowship, you can usually, you can tell. There are some men who are too stupid, but a man can usually tell. As a woman can usually tell that this other person is interested in you. And you, you know, you go from there in fellowship. But what I warn people against is the, the practice of just, hey, some kind of a, some kind of a lesser degree of commitment. You know, so let's, uh, what does the world say? Let me, hey, you want to date for a while? You want to, uh, you want to, I don't know, be committed to each other for a while? What do they call it? We're going steady. Nobody can even define these things. These, these terms and uh, what are their parameters? Right, I, right. I, I think it's wiser to just go, hey, we're, I'm your brother. You're my sister. Uh, let's, let's fellowship, spend time together, see if right. God's in this. So it's interesting. I know people who have been engaged for five years, right? That's the new thing. This is what you don't want to, I mean, it makes uh, me laugh when you have people in their 20s and 30s calling each other boyfriend, girlfriend, because they wouldn't say, look at that boy over there, look at that girl yeah. over there. And so somehow or other, they've gone into this in-between stage, and yep. many of these people who are engaged live together. But this is the part that I think quite interesting. When somebody then violates this sort of covenant, which isn't really a covenant because they haven't professed in front of witnesses, people mm-hmm. are upset, and they say, that person cheated on me. And I, my question is, what exactly did they cheat on? Exactly. When did you enter this this in the sight of God? When did you? It's worth noting the Lord's conversation with a Samaritan lady in John chapter four, and when He said to her, and He knew what He was doing, He said, "Go, lady, go go get your husband." And she said, "I don't have a husband." He was, "No, ma'am, you do not. You've got something. You've said, Roel. The truth is, you've had five husbands. What you've got now is no husband." So she had settled for something short of a husband. And the Lord acknowledged. So people always act like, well, is that piece of paper? Does that, does that, uh, entering the uh, covenant, does it really make a difference? Well, apparently it does in the sight of the son of God. Mm-hmm. I, you know, the root of the problem is, Andrea, is um, among the other things that we have done since the industrial age is we farmed out education. We have, uh, you know, both parents have gone to work and we, we've, we farmed it out rather than, actually discipling our sons and daughters. Um, and, and there are no rites of passage anymore because the father has, uh, fathers have abandoned their God-given duty to impart an identity and to be the one who informs their son or their daughter that they have crossed the line and they are now to be respected as an adult. So for the Jew, it would be a bar mitzvah if he's a boy or uh, becoming a man or a bat mitzvah if she, she is a girl becoming a woman. And when the Apostle Paul wrote in that you know, often quoted love chapter of 1 Corinthians 13, he was making larger points. And that was about growing up. You really need to grow up. And he, he concluded on the other side of the description of love, he concluded that chapter with, when I was a child, this, right? When I became a man, I put away childish things. I, I thought, I acted, uh, I spoke as a child, right? But when I became a man, he was referring to his bar mitzvah. 
It's because of that lack of um, distinction. The other in-between that affects all the things that we're talking about here is the in-between boy and man. And there are so few men who know that they are a man. And they know they're a man because their father told them there was a line that was crossed. And I think that in the absence of knowing that they are a man and they are accountable to God, they go about living like boys. And there's all of these other in-betweens, what, like what you've described. The, the, the non-manliness, I don't know if that's a good expression, but the, the unmanliness of, of the hesitation of an extended engagement is, is an expression of cowardice. And, and in a, a man's refusal to just commit, but he drags this thing out and fails to cross that line and enter into the covenant because he's got, I don't know, he's got everything worked out just right. And consequently, they're all giving each other the benefits of the covenant without the commitment of the covenant. And so they're wronging each other in that relationship. These extended, this, this is the philosophy that their Christian parents are telling their sons and daughters, you can't just enter into marriage. You can't, you can't just start a family. You've got to get all your ducks in a row. You've got to focus on your education, higher education. You've got to focus on your, your career, and then you've got to get a house. There isn't any of that that cannot be done as a married person. But in pushing marriage further and further out, um, the, everybody's just given over to fornication, to sex without the covenant. And yeah. and the consequences are all of the divorces. The Christian uh, divorce rate is higher than the secular world is, partly because we're the only ones who marry. Right, right. Nobody's doing it right. So there's a couple of things I'd like to comment on. When you talked about test drives, my husband's been in the car business for most of our married life, and he does mm-hmm. take people out on test drives. Do you like this car? Do you not? Mm-hmm. God didn't mm-hmm. give Adam a test drive with Eve. He said, this is who you have. And I often think that when we have children, they don't get to test drive their parents. These are their parents. They don't know anything else. And somehow in God's economy, he doesn't want a man to know many women intimately or a woman to know many men intimately. Yes. You've chosen the right word, the biblical word, knowing. And, you know, Adam knew his wife and she, you know, conceived a son, as it is written in, in Genesis. Far too many um, American males within the church say, well, how am I going to get to know them? And my answer is always, we're not supposed to get to know them. <laughs> Getting to know them is not your goal until you are married. Who really knows anybody? Um, right, right. You know, it, it, it is... It is, uh, I must tell you, my my story is probably not the standard, but I met my wife, uh, and the day I met her, I spoke to her about marrying me. And four days later, she finally tapped out and agreed. And she made the statement that you don't even know me. And my answer at the ripe old age of 21 was, I have known you all my life. I just did not know your name until this week. And I know it sounds like a really lame cliche. No, it doesn't, actually. It doesn't. It doesn't. I knew knew enough. I had heard her story 
We have mutual friends who are strong believers. They told me her story. They told me of her character. They told me of all that she's been through, uh, first marriage, the, the abuse, um, the courage to finally take a stand. And they, they told me of her character. They never told me she was beautiful. <laughs> <clears throat> they were the kind of people that just didn't put a high value on beauty. Well, I do. <laughs> and they, you know, they told me all about her, but they never told me she was beautiful. And when I saw her, my heart was captivated. And I put that face with that story that I'd already been told. And I was all in. I knew I'm going to marry that girl. And that's, that's, a, that's a good story. Uh, I have a comparable story, but a little bit later, I remember when my husband and I were celebrating our seventh wedding anniversary, we were at a yogurt shop and we were yeah. sort of happy. And there was this older couple there um, <clears throat> and they asked why we were so happy. And we said we'd been married seven years. Well, I think they had been married 60 years. And he right. looked at my husband and said, you won't even know her till 25 years. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> And then you wonder, even then, you know, 38 years later, I'm still discovering things. Right, right. It's an endless discovery, especially with with a woman. They're a deeper creature than a man. Uh, I think she kind of knew what she had very, very soon into this marriage. But, man, I'm finding that the depth of who this person is and this person changes from season to season. And, uh, you know, I, I, I share a life with a with a grandmother who is so very different than the the woman I met, uh, you know, when we were both young, and the, and there's a whole lot more to get to know still. Exactly. So this is the progression you lay out. It's not go find a mate, then decide what your mission is in life, and oh yeah, by the way, have a deeper relationship with your Lord. You reverse yeah. that, and you spend a lot of time saying. You shouldn't even be looking at those secondary things, mission and mate, until you're right with God. Yeah, I really believe that. Until, and especially, um, you know, as a believer, as a Christian, what you're looking for, what you are looking for is your Lord in another person. So how very important it is to know him and to know him well in order to recognize him in that that man or that woman. I think it is um it is a mistake to um to be in a hurry. And I I say that as somebody who proposed the day I met my wife. But I think it is I had already been in ministry four years, full time ministry. I knew who called me, I knew who he was. And and I I was um um at that season of life at twenty one where I, I was ready for a partner in, in the service to my king. Um, I think that's really important that we spend time realizing that the most important thing, this is, you know, seek ye first that kingdom of God and his righteousness and, and all these things. I realized that these things in Matthew 6, 33 was what I'm going to wear, what I'm going to eat, but it's certainly a way with all shall we be clothed, but it goes beyond all of that in everything that we need will be added to us if we'll seek first him and his kingdom and his righteousness. And it is um it is the Lord, the right relationship with him that is the most important thing. And it is that relationship, after all, that is going to make the other relationship succeed. Without him we're doomed. You know, my wife and I both came from broken, tragically broken homes. We come together and we knew we will retain 
We'll repeat all the mistakes they made. We'll have no more success. We'll be building on sand just as they did. Um, it, it's not going to be different just because we feel different. It's, it's going to be only because the Lord is at the center of this, that he matters. So when we when we um, chose our wedding bands, my Jeanette, she, she was aware of a Christian jeweler at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, uh, Maranatha Village. She um, told me about this, and, and we went there together, and both of us were drawn to these gold wedding bands that he had made. This guy, Bob Simon, he made these bands that had just the name Jesus engraved. And for us, that was it. As soon as we saw them, we said, that's it. This, if this is a three-party uh, relationship, it will stand. And, and we need him at the center of it. So even, even our wedding bands were making that statement. I, I think that people who are so eager, they're so wrapped up. And when you, when you consider the obsession of the world, every single song, every single secular song is about nothing other than. They know nothing deeper in their you know, their, their existence, then romance. They worship Eros and they're obsessed. There is no higher love to them. Well, to us as God's people, there is something higher. And that higher love has got to be the thing that influences this, this lower love. Intense as it may be, it isn't all by itself enough. You know, it's interesting. Most of the songs are about how somebody's left them or how sad they are. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I like what you said when you said that you met her and you'd been looking for her. So in other words, this is the idea that you don't have to go out searching. God will bring that woman to mind. And you use the example of Isaac. When Abraham is looking for a wife for Isaac, he doesn't send Isaac with his servant. He sends the servant and brings the woman back to Isaac. Talk a little bit about why you think that's significant. Well, it is a wise person who acknowledges their own capacity to be wrong. A wise person recognizes their own capacity to be deceived, and especially in this area, when perhaps physical attraction is so overwhelming that, uh, you know, even even the secular sociologists uh, come up with a uh, phenomenon they described as the halo effect, where somebody who is attractive it doesn't even matter if you're, you could be a, a man doing uh, job interviews, interviewing men for a potential position. They, they set these things up and they'll send two guys into the interview. And they're just, you know, they're actors. One has a really impressive resume. The other one has not so impressive resume. But the guy with a really impressive resume is rather plain looking. The guy with the unimpressive resume is, is uh, symmetrical and he, he, he's handsome and attractive. And there is sort of a universal, to some degree, notion about that. And the, the guy who's the better looking guy gets the job, even if it's a man doing the interview. And then they follow up with questions about the, you know, asking the interviewer, why, why'd you give it to that guy? And, and they start attributing all of these character qualities that they perceived that really weren't there, that really weren't evidenced by anything out on paper or anything that was said. It's the halo effect that even the prophet, an old prophet, sorry, like Samuel, is an old man, sent to the house of Jesse, sees David's oldest brother walk in and says, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. 
And he had to get rebuked by God who said, now, don't you pay any attention to his appearance or the height of his stature because I've rejected him. I'm not like man. I look at the heart. So if even an old prophet can be um, still affected by that reality, how much more us? So I think the, the wisdom of allowing other people to play a part and recognizing the hand of God that God sets things up, that God brings people into your life, causing your path to intersect at the season of life, as was the case with uh, Jeanette and I, and the part that other people, other strong Christians played. And uh, I think those things are more um, to be considered than just how attracted we are or just how we feel. And yes. so the, you know, that, that whole process of really looking for God. And of course, when you're, when you're head over heels, you can interpret anything as a sign from God. So you got to be careful on that. That's why I really think it, it matters that there are people in your, fellowship matters. God uses people in our lives and we need to let him, especially in this area. Yes. So moving on to a mission. Now, by mission, you don't mean a job. You don't mean benefits. You don't mean, uh, wow, you know, I'll be set for life. You're talking about a yeah. mission in terms of the kingdom of God. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, exactly. It is, it is really coming to the place of being a uh, gratitude driven bond slave. That my coming to the place where you really focus on the fact that your life is about the will of another, that your life is about the glory of that one who created you, who saved you, called you, and really come to the place where you realize that that was the purpose of your existence, that you are, according to Ephesians 2.10, God's workmanship, and you were created in Christ unto good works, which God has foreordained that we should walk in them. So, you know, our mission in some sense, changes, develops as we grow, as we get older. And, and everything, everything, there's a season, a time to be purpose under heaven. You know, it's not so much about our job or even our specific role within the church, because all of that changes and develops. But it is realizing in the big picture what my life is for. And <clears throat> I am here in this world to serve the one who brought me into existence, and who is still working in me. And, and if, if a person would make that their priority while they're single, to really make that their focus, that I want to know my master, and I want to really come to deeply appreciate that I'm a, a person on a mission, I'm a man or woman that God has a plan for. And in that context, now, Lord, who, who do you have in mind? since you are the Lord of my life, since I am serving you and I'm all about your glory. You know, yeah. You know, yeah. Who, who would you send me as a mate? And to go back to the story of Isaac and Rebecca, Rebecca didn't want a trial run. She said, yes, I'll go. And her, her, um, her father, or I guess it was her brother, wasn't all that eager. He's like, well, why don't we just hold off for a while? And she was like, no. So obviously God had put in her Connecting up with someone who, I mean, was Abraham well known? Was he somebody who other people saw was of substance and so thereby 
his son would be as well. And so when Isaac saw Rebecca and Rebecca saw Isaac, it wasn't like, well, <laughs> let's see how this goes. They were connected yeah. to each other. Yeah. Isn't it really uh, amazing how all in she was and how she let, let's go. Let's do this thing. I'm, I'm amazed by that. Their, their willingness to just step in. But you know, Andrea, one of the things that stands out to me that is different between us now and those people then is their sense of the sovereignty of God, that he's in everything, that God sets these things up. They, they had such a confidence in the sovereignty of God that they could cast lots and then accept that the lot settled the matter. Mm-hmm. So New Testament example of our casting lots after Acts chapter 1, because Acts chapter 2 the Holy Spirit comes, and God does better things. He speaks to us by the Spirit. He He gives dreams and visions. He speaks prophetic words. He gives us words of wisdom and words of knowledge. So we're better equipped. We could be better equipped than those Old Testament saints. And yet, the one thing that we lost in, in all of this is that deep appreciation that God is in charge of everything. Even how the lot is, how it's going to fall, even how the coin is going to land when it's flipped. Believing that affects uh, somebody like Rebecca, who was there when that great moment came. And when Eliezer, Abram's servant, shows up and, and she she's able to see this and go, God is in this. Yes. And I've written in my book um, about Rebecca. Rebecca gets a bad rap in scripture of having quote-unquote, deceived her husband. But if you look at it from a different point of view, God told Rebecca that the younger right. would rule over the elder, and she prevented her husband from making a really big mistake. So she did end up fulfilling that helpmate role because he was about to go do something quite stupid and quite wrong. Well, you and I agree on this. and As a matter of fact, your thinking is in line with Dr. Henry Morris. Of course, Morris was not considered a theologian. He's just a scientist. But his commentary on the book of Genesis is one of the best, in my opinion. And he points out, likewise, that there's not a word of condemnation from God against Jacob. There's not a word of condemnation from God against Rebecca. Right. Uh, all indications are the one, as you rightly say, who's blowing it was Isaac. And all of the con- condemnation spoken in Scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament, is against Esau. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I think Rebecca... Right. And, and you know what? One of the patriarchs who's not who's named Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob mm-hmm. liked venison, I guess. <laughs> and so his belly was dictating and overriding what he should have known. And praise God, God gave him that wife. Yeah, yeah, amen. Okay, so let's move on. So now the time comes that somebody's like, I really want to start a family. I I want a husband. I want a wife. And a lot of Christian families stress over this. Like, how are we going to do it? And I've known a number that have pushed weddings before the man had an established mission in terms of the kingdom. Why? Because all that mattered is that they didn't have sex before they got married. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely a mistake, isn't it? It is 
it is unwise to be impetuous, but I think it is wise and commendable to be decisive. And, um, you know, that, that, um, the need to really focus on growing in your relationship with God as a single person and really getting a handle on the fact that God has called you. You are called. Every one of us are. We are, we are created for good works. God foreordained that we should walk in them. And then, you know, in, in that, in that state, I believe that it would be wisdom. When, you know, let's just talk about when somebody finally does settle it in their heart. I'm going to marry this woman. And the woman says, I'm going to marry this man. Then there is wisdom in not spending every single day together, and certainly your evenings together. There is wisdom in a groom saying, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place, I will come again to receive you unto myself. I think that um, there's a lot of, of people failing at this because they they can't, they, all they want to do is what they feel, and they want to be together every single day. And if it's not time, if if there are things that need to be taken care of, then wisdom says, A, let's uh, make this engagement as short as we can, practically, and B, let's not be together constantly driving each other crazy with temptation. We'll, we'll protect one another in that way. And, and um, I, practically speaking, I actually encourage anybody who's listening to me, those who, you know, within our church family or beyond, who, if you really want to do this right, you really want to be blessed, to make a commitment to, um, to not ever kiss each other until there's a ring on and a date. And even then, when there's a ring and a date, between that engagement and that wedding, they ought to know the difference between a, a, an affectionate peck on the, on the lips versus a lip lock and, and a foreplay, <laughs> which is which is what most people engage in. Because that's what the world does. They think they're, they're now free and they are unbridled. If a person refuses to enter foreplay, well, they're not going to enter play. And, and uh, practically speaking, I think that Going to prepare a place, so to speak, is just wisdom. And I know that's easier said than done. But I, I, I'm sure, like me, Andrea, you you would support the short engagement for those who actually settled the matter between them and the Lord. Oh, absolutely. As a matter of fact, I think more time is spent on preparing for the wedding than for the marriage. And oh, well said. It's, you know, and I think that that's, again, adapting to the world. I mean, who cares what the party favors will be? Nowadays with Zoom, I've gone to many weddings recently, Ken, where mm. I watched it. I didn't have to get on a plane and, and whatever because it was far away. And, and uh-huh. I got to see two people united together with Christ as the third person in their relationship. But yeah. I'd like you to comment on something because when I've heard you teach and preach, you are quite knowledgeable of the Old Testament culture that the law of God um, speaks into and directs. Mm. And that's the whole idea of the dowry. Um, it'd be very yeah. hard for a man to, in that culture, biblically speaking, to mm-hmm. get his hands on a girl before he had manifested how serious he was and convinced her father. Well, sir, if he hadn't paid that price, if he hasn't gone, and I, I hate to, it's an unpleasant subject, but David's dowry for Michael 
is yes. <laughs> worth bringing up. It's, uh, you know, Saul wants David dead. He doesn't really want him marrying his daughter. He's already gone some degree of mad. And he says, um, the dowry for this girl is 100 Philistine foreskins. Nothing says love like 100 Philistine foreskins. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he's he knows the, the Philistines aren't going to convert and just get circumcised. Yes. That, uh, David's going to have to approach, and when David hears this, to him, that's like too small a price. And I can picture David approaching those Philistines with a sword in hand going, we can do this the easy way or the hard way, or we can do this the easy way or the easier way. <laughs> but yes. um, I have something, you have something I need, and I, I have I have to risk my life to demonstrate my love for this woman, my commitment. Right. All right, so most, most dowries do not involve the risking of one's life. But the dowry as a concept separated the men from the boys. It put an end. To, there was no test drivers. The, you have demonstrated by hard work and with management your willingness to do what it takes to have that woman's hand. And, you know, the, we mock the old ways and yet the old ways worked and what we do today doesn't work. I, I'm eager for people to finally come to the realization that we have lost and abandoned true wisdom along the way. So a man proving, proof matters. Talk is cheap. And a man proving, and he's not going to prove that by just hanging out with her. Every, he ought to be working night and day. He ought to be sacrificing, laboring. He ought to be just breaking his back in order to produce obvious, tangible evidence of his deep commitment. The law doesn't specify how much, but I'm right. told that custom says it was about three years wages. And we, yeah. we get a sense of um, Jacob. He had to work seven years for the bride he didn't get. Yeah, yeah. And, and Jacob said, it was actually the statement, at least, uh, Moses gives to us is that it seemed like a day to him. Seven years seemed like a day for his love for him. Yeah. It, it was it was a matter of perspective to him. Oh, small price to pay. Today, men whine again. There are just too many boys that never got a rite of passage, and they're so busy whining rather than embracing the challenge, rather than taking it on and proving themselves one way or the other. Let, let's flip it to the woman because yeah. it's the father's responsibility to communicate to his daughter that she's worth this dowry, right? Well, so yes. she's not being sold. She's being valued. Well said, you know, and, and that is an important thing that it is a dad, a father who's supposed to impart identity. And I was committed when I was raising a daughter that the daughter was not going to be praised by me for her physical beauty. Any dad who just brags about how pretty his daughter is and, and does that in front of her is just setting an unattainable standard and, and uh, sending the complete wrong message when courage, when clarity, when wisdom is the very thing that she should be praised for because that's the thing she will excel at. The thing that her dad demonstrates which really matters is also the thing that later on, she is expecting a man to recognize what her dad saw, what her dad praised. And, um, and, that, and that is a very different thing. 
And then she, because she knows how valuable she is, she's not selling herself cheap to anybody who hasn't proven. And that, sadly, I, I'm the, I'm the son of a, of a very broken woman. My mother, who went to be with the Lord last spring, was a very broken woman, broken by her father's abuse and broken by my father's abuse. She fled her dad and ended up with my dad. And, and all of her entire life, Andrea, she never knew that she was valuable. She never thought she had anything to offer at all. It, it stayed with her all 80 years of her journey, her sojourn. And I, I know the Lord would, the Lord did wonderful things in her life. I know he wanted to do a whole lot more than that. And I'm sure that now in his presence, she knows who she is now. She got a new name and a whole new identity now with him. But it broke my heart to observe it as, as a, as a boy and as a young man and even, you know, as a middle aged man trying to minister to my mother and help her understand that she has more to offer. I was yeah. not going to let my daughter experience any such thing that she would not be going to the, to the first guy that came along and said nice thing that she was going to hold and out. From a father's point of view to someone who will love her as much, if not more than the father <laughs> does. Amen. Yeah. When, you, when, when my daughter was growing up, there were, and, and she was saying, there were a lot of people, and I, and I have this reputation of this, this, uh, this, you know, macho, uh, this, all the bravado. I, I've got this reputation for this biking identity. And so people would say, what in the world was that like to my son-in-law? What was that like? You know, trying to win Ken Graves' daughter. And my son-in-law would tell you, it was Ken Graves' daughter that was the scary one. <laughs> it was, it was his, it was Ken Graves' daughter that <laughs> made him prove things. And so. I didn't have to do anything. I thought when she was a little girl, I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to beat several men half to death, or you know, I'm gonna have to just keep this, um, you know, this vigilance. I yes. didn't have to. I, I didn't have to because I had imparted to her a sense of her value. Boy, it really, it, it, it blessed me to watch it all happen. I must tell you that when she was a little girl and uh, butterfly kisses was on Christian radio, it would make me cry every time. Thinking mm-hmm. song, and uh, you know the thought of her growing up and changing her name, and and um, it was so different from the day it came down and, and her wedding happened. I had never been up until that moment so happy in my whole life as I was, and it it really ambushed me. I I found at the end of that whole wedding, my face hurt. Wow. <laughs> How long I had smiled. Apparently my smile muscles were out of shape. I and see. Yeah. It was watching her dream come true, seeing her happiness and joy. I remember was- I told you that I what I'd been to some weddings on Zoom. Well, the most recent one was a number of weeks ago. And I tell you, Ken, the father, because I could see him. You'd think yeah. he was at the Super Bowl or something. He was hooting and hollering when they, you know, you may now kiss the bride. And it was yeah. just as you just described it. His wife told me, yeah, I, I was trying to figure out, should I be embarrassed about this? <laughs> That's the <laughs> man who was, was so, blessed. It was wonderful to see him do that. That's somebody who was blessed. Oh, what a blessing. Yeah. So I've taken up enough of your time, but I do want to close 
with something that you referenced, you know, how they talk about, yeah, the father's going to have the shotgun and, you know, protect the girls. And they look at some child and say, oh, that person's going to break a lot of hearts as if that was a good thing. You talk Mm -hmm. about how important it is all along the way as a single person, as a soon to be married person and as a married person to guard your heart. What are you mm-hmm. guarding it from? Well, I think it's important we realize that it belongs, first of all, to the one who created us and who redeemed us. We owe him, and our heart belongs to him. And we cannot just let it go running off and do whatever it wants to do. And then once we, understanding who is our master and what is our mission, and that is glorifying him, and then we allow him to lead us into that relationship where by we actually become one. We become mates. But then it's important that we guard what belongs to the Lord. And we guard what belongs to the person that we partner up with. And the heart is ridiculously fickle. It's deceitful above all things. It really is. It, it remains that even though we have the Holy Spirit, even though we're new creations, there is that capacity within every one of us to be a stupid middle school kid on the inside. <laughs> So I think it guarding our heart that it would ever go elsewhere is something that we are obligated to do as bond slaves. And that I think, uh, you know, who is it? Um, it was actually John MacArthur who wrote a book called Slave. It was a profound book. And he gives a wonderful um, historical education on the institution of slavery and, you know, what what it meant the, the contrast between a slave and a servant, the slave has no will. The slave is owned. He points out that the New Testament, the Old Testament, the English translations don't use the word slave where it ought to. And, you know, the reason why that is, you know, by the time the Bible was translated into English, slavery had become a uniquely ethnic thing. And if they just used the actual word, that was a literal translation of the Greek doulos, then the reader would think the character is brown. You're black, and the, but but MacArthur's contrast of uh, servant versus slave is really worth noting. That you know, we as a slave, understanding a, a particularly a bond slave, somebody who's been given the opportunity to be free, and said, "Please don't ever set me free. You're my master. I've never had it so good." When I was supposedly free, I was a slave to self. I was a slave to so many other things. But as your slave, I've been truly free. That freedom must be protected and guarded. We must live, I, I believe, really living gratitude. It's only gratitude that would make anybody a bond slave. Anybody saying, no, please don't. Don't send me away. Don't set me free. And, yes. and I think that, that, that living out that gratitude, I owe a debt to my maker. Now as a husband, I owe a debt to a woman who has endured me for all these decades. And uh, realizing duty and realizing debts, that's something that modern culture knows very little of. Well, hopefully, with books like yours, Master Mission Mate by Pastor Ken Graves, I hope you keep it in print. Um, I know you wrote it back in 2006. I'm hoping yeah. that you get a rush of orders because this is something for parents, for their children, young people in you know, maneuvering the course of, I know I want to have a family. How do I get there? And yeah. I'm grateful that I found someone who said it better than I did. <laughs> well, I'm grateful you think so. Okay. 
Um, how do people get a hold of you, Ken, if they would like to? Ken Graves at ccbangor.org. Our website at Calvary Chapel is just ccbangor.org. Uh, that's B-A-N-G-O-R, Bangor, Maine. We're yes. all the way up here in the extreme northeast. And you have lots of videos that people can watch, and I, I enjoy you thoroughly. That's why I hunted you down so I could get this interview. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Andrea. Well, I'm a lot better on radio. I'm a lot better in audio than I am. All right, listeners, as always, if you would like to get a hold of us, out of the question podcast at gmail.com is how you do it. And we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.